Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Kevin Bartini is a stand-up comedian and writer who audiences see first when they attend tapings of the nightly show with Larry Wilmore on Comedy Central. Bartini has also warmed up TV audiences for The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, and sometimes now The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He also hosts the Movie Preview Review Podcast, part of the Showbiz Studios Network, and spearheaded the years-long effort to successfully rename the New York City block George Carlin grew up on as George Carlin Way. Bartini is in a new off-Broadway production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, Time to help us ring in the summer of 2016. So let's get to it. All right. So I'm here with Kevin Bartini, who I'm anxious and eager to talk to because I feel like I've only scratched the surface of our relationship slash friendship. There's so much I don't really know about you. And the first thing I knew about you surprised me because I was like, who's this guy uh, naming a street after George Carlin? Okay. I was like, who is this guy? (laughs) And then the last most recent thing I learned about you is that you're a Shakespearean actor. Yeah. And I'm like, who is this George Carlin guy who's a comedian (laughs) Who's now doing Shakespeare. Yeah. So last things first. Okay. Uh, I've come to learn, or I think I know, that the Shakespearean theatrical experience actually cuts deeper for you than the comedy. That's, you started, extent, yeah. you were doing that at a very, very young, young age. age. Yeah. How, well, how did you get involved in, in theater and performing to begin with? Well, um... They're both they're both interconnected the theater and the stand up basically like because I was a child uh, of the eighties when stand up was in its heyday and its right, boom the, fir- the and boom yeah every cable channel had a show I, I was from like age six on I wanted to be a stand up I I knew very early on and um, I realized that if I you know if I had aspired to play um, in the NBA I would need to be out uh, at the barn throwing free throws. Every night, you right. know, so so the equivalent of, of that is if, if I knew I wanted to be a stand up when I got older, then I needed to get on stage as much as possible. So I was at least comfortable on stage. So I uh, I, I got into theater. I did I did grade school and high school. Community what what college, was the first summer stock? What was the first thing you remember doing? The first stage. The, actually, strangely enough, the first theatrical thing I did was um we went to see we went to see a Christmas Carol at, okay. at uh, um, and it was a very small production. I think there was only two actors. Where were you? At this so this point. is I'm from the Berkshires, okay, which is a very big summer stock kind of place. Yeah, and, you know, and um, it was at a theater at the Berkshire Museum, and there was I think it was just two two actors doing all the roles, mm-hmm. and um, I uh, they at one point said that um, they needed a, a child. To come up to play Tiny Tim, yes. and so I put my hand up. So I think that was probably the very first was going up and and just you know they just okay and then you're going to say and God bless us everyone. Right. And there wasn't much more to it, but I think that was the start. And then we did great school. Wait, what kind of reaction did you get as Tiny Tim? 
Uh, I'm sure it was fine. I'm sure it wasn't a thing where I was like bit by the bug right at that moment or okay. something. But I was just, you know, I, I would anytime there was, uh, I remember there was a, a, a singer, child children's singer in the Berkshires named David Grover, and he, mm-hmm. um, he would have a song where he would have some kids come up and be a part of it, and right. I, I always did that. And I was, I don't know, I was just anytime there was a chance, I would go up on stage. If you're so. growing up around like the Williamstown Theater uh-huh. and all that. How much does that influence your desire to be part of that? It versus going to New York or um, LA or Well, I didn't know about really about Williamstown or Barrington when I was growing up Barrington Stage hadn't come mm-hmm. along yet. There was Shakespeare and Company and stuff, okay. but we didn't go to theater when I was a kid. We okay. didn't a lot. Um it was really it was just something I did when there was a school production I would get involved mm-hmm. and and stuff like that and then uh once I once I was a you know a teenager, um, then I started to get into it more. Got into some community theater, and then worked my way into apprenticing at Williamstown and working for Barrington Stage and and the thing. The, the great thing is from where I grew up because we had all these um, all these different theater companies, mm-hmm. and 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 as wonderful as Williamstown is. Once the leaves change, they're out of there. They don't, you know, they're at Williams College and then they vacate right. uh, at the end of the summer. But Shakespeare and Company doesn't. They're a year-round facility and they're world class. And what they do is they have a high emphasis on education. And so Shakespeare and Company um, during the fall will send their directors to all the different high schools. Mm-hmm. They're they're. I, I think maybe now they're doing it to 15 different high schools in the Northeast. They send their their directors and uh, and some some various members of their of their company into the high schools. And for our fall play, it's a Shakespeare production directed by professional Shakespearean actors and directors with help from their technicians and everything else. And um, and and so that's what our drama club did in the fall. So. Uh, you know, w- when I was in when I was a freshman in high school, I didn't really appreciate what it was, and it wasn't until I probably looked back on it 15 years later to really understand how lucky I was that that opportunity. There's nothing in the world like that that right. you have these professionals and they come in. So we did, you know, we would do our we would do the play at the school for for a weekend or two, and then they would uh, take all the productions up to at the time it was the community college to their theater. And it was called the Fall Festival of Shakespeare, and each high school did a performance of their show, and you could go watch the other shows, and you could, um, you know, do it just in a much larger theater, and and it was just it, and then they would have these um, these nights where students from all the schools would gather at maybe one high school gym, and they would they would have a, a workshop where they would teach a bit of fencing and a mm-hmm. bit of stagecraft and a bit of these different types of things. So, um, I I learned a lot from them, and I also learned. How to do Shakespeare, which as, as far as theater goes, I mean, I guess there's Kabuki. That's a little <laughs> bit more difficult because it's not in English or, or Greek. Yeah, the it, Greek. Yeah, it's just very involved, very tough to do. So I, um, I, I got my basis of of just my comfort level up to be on stage. Were you in the cast each year in high school? Yes. Or? Yeah, okay. I did it each year. Yeah. Which uh, cool. which which productions did you do in high school? Um, my fresh let's see we did we did the tempest mm-hmm. we did macbeth clothed we, you did the tempest clothed yes yeah no news <laughs> uh we did macbeth we did as you like it mm-hmm. and we did much ado about nothing oh and uh so you didn't do a midsummer night's dream no they did it the year after i graduated they did midsummer ah. but now you um, have the last laugh because now you're in <laughs> a production 
yes. this this month off Broadway of Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream at Theater Eighty St. Mark's. That's right. Yes. Uh, tell me about the role that you have in this show. This show, I'm playing. Um, Theseus, and he is the Duke of Athens. And if mm-hmm. if people don't know the the plot line of Midsummer Night's Dream, it's it's basically you have a you have a, a man who who brings his daughter before the Duke, and uh, his he he his daughter is refusing to marry the man he's demanding, mm-hmm. and so basically the Duke tells her. You have four days to to make up your mind. Either you're going to marry this man like your father wants, or the law says that you will be killed or sent away to be a nun for the rest mm. of your life. And so then this this woman and the man she's in love with escape into the woods, and the woods is a separate kingdom that's ruled by supernatural forces. Right, that's and like there's the dream. Yes, the dream exactly. World. There's fairies and there's things, and then. And then there's a comedy of errors that happens in a play within a play, and it all ends happily right. with it's a marriage. It's one of the lighter ones, despite, is, yeah. despite that setup. It's, it's one of the yes. Shakespeare's lighter <laughs> Yeah, lighter exactly. So my, so my role, I bookend the show, basically. I set the plot in motion, mm-hmm. and then they go off to the, to the fairy world where I'm not a part of that. And then Act 4 and Act 5 are more, again, about me and, and, and my marriage and all that stuff. How did you set your own plot in motion after high school? Well, uh, did you have? Did you go to college for theater, or did well, you I went, have a? What was your plan? I I was really, um, I, I spun my wheels for quite a while because mm-hmm. I wasn't a very good student. I if okay. something, if something didn't interest me, it just didn't interest me. So I had, I had pretty lousy grades and everything but history and English and you know, um, so I I went to community college for a little while. And uh, did theater there, mm-hmm. but I wasn't, you know, it's, I was going for some sort of a liberal arts degree. But I, I never was really, I didn't really have a passion for it because I knew I wanted to be a comic. And so I was still, you know, I was 18 and, and it just, I was still a little young. To, what to what did your parents think about this? Um, my parents were were supportive. They thought it was cool. They thought it was a good idea. I don't know if they believed that I had the the follow through on it. Mm. And um, and and for a little while there, in later in my teens, I didn't. I I kind of put it on the back burner because of the TV show Seinfeld. And what happened is, remember the <laughs> character Banya in Seinfeld, who is the the hack comic mm-hmm. that Jerry hated. Just the idea that. I could go out. I was never afraid of bombing in front of an audience, but the idea that, well, what if I tried comedy and I didn't have the respect of my peers? What if I was Banya? Mm. That is a fate worse than never doing it. So that put me off for a little while. And then um, what happened was when I was uh, 19, almost 20, um, just a month before I turned turned 20. It's a, it's a long story, but, but the, the, the bullet points are this. Um, my brother was killed. And uh, it happened. Older or younger? He was a year and a half younger. Okay. He had been um, he had multiple sclerosis, and uh, it one of the things that it did is it wiped away his short term memory. And one of the things he didn't remember was he wasn't supposed to drive. And mm. uh, he died uh, in a car crash. And he, to make matters worse, uh, he died while I was babysitting him. He couldn't be left alone. And I turned to my back, and he got out of the house, got into a car, and he. he he crashed a mile down the road, and I came upon the crash site, and I had this whole the horror of, a, of the cop or fireman or whoever coming up and telling me he was gone and right. all that. So my life is very B.C. and, and A.D. Yeah. with that moment because literally it sounds hokey and weird and corny, but literally at that moment standing there 
the side of the road uh, on a February morning, February afternoon in my socks, just be told my, my brother is dead. My, my, you know, like one of my first thoughts was I'm going to become a comic. The, everything else didn't matter. The Banya thing was gone because all of a sudden in one rush, I, I was just shown life is short. It can end in a blink of an eye. So if being Banya is the worst thing that happens to you, then so be it. And so I told my parents within that week or so that I was dropping out of community college, that I was going to become a comic. And, um, they, uh, you know, they, they supported it and they said, well, then, um, this summer you have to go do Williamstown, be an apprentice mm-hmm. Williamstown. And the reason we went up, we sent, I went up there was because Lewis Black was teaching stand up right. to, to the apprentices. I've read, I've read in his books that he would go up. Yeah, it was amazing. So I, I spent that, that first summer after my brother was gone, which should have been, and it, 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 it was a horrific time for me, but, uh, that Williamstown summer was like one of the best summers of my life. Uh, it was, it, it took me away from my problems and I made lifelong friends and I got to be an experience of all that stuff. And I got to take Lewis's class. And then once that ended, uh, I started going off to, to do some, uh, guest spots at a comedy works in Albany, which was the closest to my parents' house. And I did that for about a year and then I moved to New York city and yeah, I mean, you know, away. tragic moments like that. Or, or moments that really shake you to your core also make you immediately take stock of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember my – I have an uncle who had um, – who battled Hodgkin's mm-hmm. disease um, when he was in high school. And he survived it and, and he's alive to this day and, and doing well and, uh, you know, about 50 at this point, you know. And uh, I remember at one point him saying that – Going through that, how it changed him and, and how it changed him for the better and how you you just – yeah, you prioritize things or, or nothing seems as bad as what you've gone through and you you build some sort of a husk, some sort of a shell and, and, and I've uh, – you know, I, I have that feeling. I've never experienced stage fright and I've never – no matter how big the show is, whatever it is, uh, even bombing, nothing has gotten to me because nothing – you can throw at me short of being paralyzed uh well, is as bad as what i went through and so i started yeah. i started my life out as a as a comic uh, at about age 20 what how much how much interaction did you get to have with lewis black that quite a bit that summer the, he was very accessible what was your what did you know about him at that time so this was 1999. He was he was on the Daily Show already. on the Daily Show. Um, I had but I he had, hadn't really broken huge yet. He wasn't doing his one man show on Broadway yet. Right. Um, he was just starting to get into some movies a little bit, but nothing right. you know nothing major. But um, I remembered Lewis from from you know even the the early 90s, I guess late 80s doing. TV spots, stand up things. I, his energy. He was angry and right. shaking and very. You just couldn't forget him because he was so, um, you know, always smoking and just just this guy who just he was so angry and so flailing and so passionate and smoking and you were you were watching him do stand up and just thinking this guy could keel over at any second <laughs> he's, he's he's really giving his heart a workout so, so raw yeah so I was a fan of his his stand up from as soon as I uh, experienced him mm-hmm. and then um, yeah and then that summer I was a I was a big fan of the Daily Show and I I watched that and he was always on and i always loved him and so it was lewis black teaching i was there so we he uh he he i was the only um um 
apprentice there out of a hundred of us, the only one who got who came to Williamstown because I wanted to be a stand-up. I didn't give a shit about the theatrical aspects. <laughs> right. And and I actually ended up ironically being one of the few of us who was cast in one of the plays and everything else. But like I, I just did – that's all I wanted. So I I took his class and, mm-hmm. and I got to perform. Um, he selected me as one of the people to perform one night on a stand-up showcase. And I would watch him. He would do stand-up. He would host the cabaret nights and stuff. And then, um, and then he was he – was, very accessible. So you'd see him around. You'd see him at you know rap parties, mm-hmm. or it's a small town, so we would all be at the same one of one of the three bars in town every night somewhere. The whole company. So everybody was pretty well accessible. Everybody. Gwyneth Paltrow was there that year. She wasn't accessible. Everybody else. <laughs> she had literally won the Oscar. Was the biggest star in the oh, world. Oh, poor Shakespeare in Love. Yes, won the Oscar, <laughs> and the next day announced she was going back to Williamstown. So that was that put us on the map huge right. that year. And I remember when her play was up. I remember Meryl Streep came. We mm-hmm. got to, and she started talking to us, some of us apprentices, about mm-hmm. what was it like as an apprentice there. And she had her daughter, who ended up being oh, right. uh, Grace Gummer. Grace Gummer, yeah, yeah. yeah, who ended up being a big actress, and yeah. I think maybe ended up apprenticing there years later and she was asking us what we thought about it what did you tell Meryl how great it was we were <laughs> you know it probably sounded like we were in a cult but it was uh it was such a wonderful experience so you know? how long did you wait before you spilled spilled your guts to Lewis and said let him know what your real dreams were I saw I remember seeing Lewis uh when he first got there um Walking in, in into a, op- opening a glass door, and he was walking to go in, towards an office. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure that the glass door closed all the way behind him before I was already gushing and telling. Wait, the him, first few minutes? Absolutely. Just I am a huge fan of yours. I came here specifically because you're here. I want to be a stand-up, and I want to learn from you. And absolutely. You, and you didn't scare him because he cast you in things. He didn't ca- – well, I don't know. <laughs> you were one of those people who goes, who's this psychotic I'm, stalker fan? I, I'm not sure that those aren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> I am sure I freaked him out. He gave you the benefit of the doubt? <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine his response was something like, easy, pal. Jesus, you know. <laughs> but I was – but, you know, I, I, I was – uh, I, I was um, one of the few you know, who actually aspired to be right. a stand-up. So, of course, he was going to put me in that show because it was – Apprentices from the class. There's mm-hmm. probably seven of us selected, so I got to do it. Have you seen the movie Accepted? That he's in. He plays yeah, a professor. He plays that a where, professor. Where yes. Justin Long creates yep. his own college. Yes. How 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 was he as a real uh, <laughs> as a real professor as a real professor compared to how he, was, he portrayed a comedy? <laughs> he was he was good. I mean, um, I remember he was just so Lewis. So mm-hmm. anytime. Something would annoy him. It was hilarious. Like I remember us being – so we're at the uh, – at Williams College on their campus and one day uh, whatever theater or whatever space we were supposed to use was just – wasn't available or something. So he ended up bringing us out uh, to sit under a, under the shade of a tree mm-hmm. outside the dorms and you know this is, sounds like something out of the 1800s. You'll sit under the shade of a tree as you're – Lectured to, but we were doing that and lectured to by Lewis Black, and he's telling us about talking about comedy and and just the basis of storytelling and 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 some of the stuff, and then um, 
right behind right behind him in one of the dorm rooms somebody started playing some new age music very loud <laughs> like so you have to picture this is lewis black cigarette in hand mm-hmm. annoyed already dressed all in black out in the sun <laughs> Lecturing to us, trying to do this. He can't be in, in the air-conditioned room he had thought. He's already mm-hmm. pissed off, and now somebody's playing Enya over him. So so it was a lot of stuff like that. It was just enjoying his yeah. his being him. But he was he was passionate about it, and he understood that most of – you know, he understood that almost every person in that room was terrified of the idea of doing stand-up, was there begrudgingly. Like they didn't – they wanted to be on Broadway. Right. They wanted – they they were there because they wanted to uh, – to have you know a Tony Award-winning director teach them about acting or or learn stagecraft or stage right. fighting from the best of the best, and here <laughs> yeah. they had to have Lewis Black tell them about stand up, which show. yeah, which they didn't want anything to do. So he <laughs> except was for a, you, except for me, who was just soaking it all in, yeah. like a puppy dog. Exactly, exactly. So at the end of at the end of that uh, tenure at Williamstown, mm-hmm. I presume you asked him for advice. I mean, or... he'd, he'd given a lot of advice uh, throughout. I just kind of, um, I, I, I may, maybe a little, but I, I, I just kind of the thing was like, okay, the summer's done. Mm-hmm. He's heading off and doing his thing, and then I, he and I, we didn't really cross paths again for maybe a decade. Okay, I would say because because like like literally the point where I was moving to New York City. When I moved down here was – Did you move straight after that? No, or? I did. I didn't. I, I spent another year at my – living at my parents' mm-hmm. house and I um, – Was that a financial yeah, move? Yeah, it was okay. a financial move. It, well, the thing was also I didn't want – again, um, I didn't want anybody in New York City to see me – Be Banya. Before, yeah, before I was ready. I didn't even let my family see me do comedy for the first probably eight months. I needed, Were there places to go up in Yeah, I lived in, in Western Mass. There weren't in the Berkshires, but – Northampton? The comedy works in Amherst Albany. Or... The comedy oh, works right, in Albany. Albany. They, they gave me guest spots on their, on their shows. So that was maybe just a spot. Of what did you have to do to get those spots? Nothing. Absolutely nothing but show up. Call ahead, and mm-hmm. if there was room, if if it was a week, if they're they're really great about that, and if there but was I mean, a weekend, you, ha- you didn't have a reel or anything. No, right? just five minutes. <laughs> it's, that's not uncommon for road clubs to nurture young talent from the area okay. that want to try, and they they put you up. It would be like the late show on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and you'd get five minutes. And I'm sometimes... sure the club in Albany is dreading <laughs> the next two days after this comes <laughs> No, I think I, I the think they still ringing. do it. They Please. still do. <laughs> come and do spots. They still come do on, it. Come on, come on. Yeah, they're great. The 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 uh, I owe them a lot. I'm I'm really grateful. And then, but there were some times where they would have. I mean, they would. He, sometimes he wouldn't say no to anybody. He would five mm-hmm. or six guys. And I remember, like Lisa Lampanelli was up there all the time. I was going to say who are the headliners. Back then, I remember Lisa Lampanelli. She took me under her wing. Okay. She's the one I remember the most. Kevin Downey Jr. came mm-hmm. up a lot. And he became one of my closest lifelong friends. Uh, Rich Voss. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus. Uh, you know, uh, anybody who would have been a road headliner in what What got you in Lisa's good graces? Um, Lisa just saw me doing a warm doing a doing a guest spot, mm-hmm. and, you know. And she was she was not yet famous uh, at all. She, you know, she was just just starting to headline. Mm-hmm. And she but, hadn't done any roasts yet. No, but okay. she was crushing. I mean, right. she was really crushing. And so she they booked her any weekend they could get her. I mean, she was up there every. It, you know, once every four or five weeks. Okay. And um, so she saw me a couple of times, and 
And then um, I remember one night she was bitching to to the to the owner of the club because he had five amateurs right, going open, up open micers before essentially. the feature. Yeah, right. exactly. So like people are coming to see her, and and not only is she got to wait an extra half hour, it's it's twenty five minutes of hacks before right. the you know. So she said to him, she said to 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 him, and she goes. She goes, you can put one of them on tonight, and it's him. And she pointed to me. And then afterwards, we would mm-hmm. chat. And she, um, she even uh, at first started to, she coached me a little. Like okay. she would, uh, she said, anytime I come, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, you have your jokes written out. We'll work mm-hmm. on it. And then um, when I moved, she was the one who actually got me to move to New York. She was like, no, you're ready. You need to get down and start. You're at least as good as the open micers, and you need to start. And she got me down there. And she was even teaching a class at Stand Up New York. Okay. So I would I would take um, a sub I would take the train the Metro North uh, every Saturday down to Stand Up New York to take her class and then come home, which is five hours round trip. Right. So that kind of dedication impressed her. And then from that class, she got the general manager of the club to see me, and he. Um, this is by the time I moved down, but then mm-hmm. he hired me to start working the door, and that's where I got okay. my college education. Was working the door at Stand Up New York for like two years. What year was that? That would have been I moved down here in November of two thousand. I got the phone call from the GM on Super Bowl Sunday of two thousand one, and I was there till probably two thousand three working the door. And wow. yeah, it's which I I always tell young comics if you can get a gig working the door at a club, it doesn't pay dick, but right. But uh, it's a college education because, you know, I would, I would uh, tear the tickets and pass out the cheesy fries and all that other shit. And if if the toilet was plunged, I was the one to to plunge it if it was clogged. But the trade off is and and all this for fifteen bucks and a cheeseburger. But the trade off is I sat at that desk and night after night after night I just watched guys like Gaffigan and Ted Alexandro and Jim Norton and Greg Giraldo and Patrice and Patrice and and uh, Todd Barry and you know all these great comics who were great back then and and especially Gaffigan he was just on every show and and I just got a such an education of seeing how they created a bit how yeah. they took an idea kernel and would come in night after night and keep expounding on it and and you'd see the bit get bigger and bigger and bigger and then you'd see how they'd start to trim the fat down and and um that was such an education when you're working there at the door mm-hmm. are you allowed allotted a certain amount of guest spots during the week or, or, of, yeah. or did you have to wait a while before that happened no i didn't have to wait yeah it was that was kind of the trade-off any mm-hmm. night you were there you pretty much had a right to be on the show. So like – which didn't always end up. You didn't necessarily end up on every show. And on mm-hmm. Saturday nights, no. But on the Was that like nights, at the end of the night when like a sometimes. lot of clubs would do like yep. – they put the new people on yeah. Yeah. after one in the morning? Yeah. It was, I mean it was disheartening because you would or do – Or in the check spots. Yeah, you would eat check spots. If you're lucky, you got to eat check spots because mm-hmm. if not, what they would do is they would have – it would just be called late night. and. Right. You know, you'd bust your ass all the whole show, and the the room is packed, and there's 180 people, and you're you're you know you've done your thing, and it's finally, it's it's late night, it's time to sh- to do the show, and the 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 host would uh, would say, all right, everybody, well that's the end of the the regular show. Now we're going to start with the late night, and please stick around. And 175 <laughs> people would be barreling out right. like he just shot off a pistol and said the place is on fire. And it was like literally you're just playing now to five people yeah. who couldn't get out of there in time, and now they're they feel stuck. But um, but those shows also, I mean, that's such a great opportunity because that is what I I think of as like um. 
you know, swinging a bat with the donut on it. It's really weighted and it's tough. But once they would let me get up on the regular show or, or if I was lucky enough to, you know, if, if Geraldo was running late, they may throw me up yeah. for seven minutes. And now I'm in front of a packed house and I've been swinging with that donut and I'm I'm doing well. And, and uh it was it was such a great experience. Did you uh, work the road that much? I mean, did Lisa take you she out? She took or? me out a bit. She did. Uh, I didn't work it so much because again, I was, I was, uh, I was only twenty one, twenty two at the time, and I didn't have a car, and I wasn't old enough to rent a car. So all I in all the road work, whatever I could get, was hosting. And I did mm-hmm. a bunch of it, but okay. um, it it got to a point where it wasn't financially mm-hmm. it didn't make a lot of sense especially once we got up to like 08 and the economy crashed then it was ridiculous and gas prices spiked and places were still paying you to did feature you... 300 bucks for the weekend and you got to rent a car and everything else you'd almost lose money did you have to take other like side day jobs or was the was the gig working at stand up new york plus any s- spots you got was that yeah. enough, was that enough to get by i had i had uh I had always had a job since I was like 13, dishwashing and mm-hmm. working in kitchens and restaurants and stuff. So I had a nice savings account. And then um, coming home from uh, Stand Up New York one night on Father's Day of uh, – must have been 2002. I was in a, a crash in a taxi. He was he was speeding you along. You were a passenger. I was a passenger, and he was speeding, mm-hmm. and it was a rainstorm, and uh, he broke. We hydroplane and spun and crashed, and I I broke my hand, and uh, we sued, and I I think I got, I think I got fifteen grand for that, mm-hmm. and so that carried me, and then I would, I would occasionally do some uh, some temping and some mm-hmm. things like that, and then. After a while, uh, after doing the door for a long time at, at Stand Up New York, they let me start to produce bringer shows and stuff. So um, I became like their new talent manager there, and hmm. which was which was great because you know somebody called is interested, I would get the name, right, and then you would do the shows, and then I I started coming up with contests and ideas. We did a we did a contest where um, we you, the winner got flown to. Uh, Hollywood to perform at the LA Improv, and that winner ended up being Adam Hunter, who uh, was on an early season of Last Comic Standing, and yeah. he's on a show on Oxygen right now. I think so. Plus, yeah. he's got this MMA stuff. He's just yeah. he really you know is blown up. And now I'm not taking credit for that. He's right. a hardworking, funny guy. Mm-hmm. But that was his first time to go out to LA, and he made some connections. Mm-hmm. We did one where he flew people out to perform at Jonglers in England and stuff like that. So there were some really big contests and really big things. That was that the moment where you? Decided you didn't need a side yeah. hustle. Yeah, because the, 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 the bringer shows were um, – I mean the club was basically – I got to the point where I was doing so well that they were just giving me the door. And so you could sell out uh, – You could se- if you sold out a show, you could make you know, $1,500, $2,000 in a night. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we did the, uh, the Hollywood Improv show um, – you know, my idea was always I, – I wasn't a big fan of bringer shows, but I thought as long as I'm giving the comics who are bringing an audience something real, something – you know, those shows were being judged by industry. They're, if you're getting something out of it beyond just your seven minutes, I was okay with it. So we – you know, I came up with this, this contest, and we had like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We sold out three nights in a row of the first round of that mm-hmm. contest, and uh, – you know, I, I think I made five grand, you know, so I was able to make enough 
doing that that I didn't have to do the day job. What was your living situation like at the time? I know you're married now. I'm married now. At that time, uh, for the first the first year or two, I lived with two other dudes that I had met through Summerstock Theater out in Queens, and then um, then I moved in with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and she uh, she and I have lived in the same place. And uh, it was a rent controlled situation too, uh-huh. so we were very fortunate. Excuse me. That's another another main reason I didn't have to take a main gig because our rent was was ridiculous. Now, when you're then. setting up all of these contests for uh-huh. new talent, how much are you wondering about industry noticing you? Not at all. In fact, I actively avoided it. I actively avoided. What was your? Again, I didn't want to be seen before I was ready. I was, and 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 it's a strategy that has probably hurt me in the long run. Mm-hmm. But I um. I don't think until – oh, God, I, I'd been doing comedy – I think it was 2009, so almost 10 years mm-hmm. when I happened into my job at The Daily Show. And, right. and it was only at that point that I really started and that's, having any that's industry. And that's as the audience warm-up. Yeah. How, do you, uh, how does uh, one happen into one of those jobs? Well, I didn't happen into it. I, I, but, I, but, I, for, yeah, but it's that, one of those jobs that if you're not in that, in that small group mm-hmm. of people – you're like, how do how, yeah. does, how do you even get into that world? Well, what I did is, um, I I I aspired. I, what it is, I realized that it's very early on that it's super difficult to make a living just as a stand-up. There's a half dozen guys right now, really, who are headlining all the theaters mm-hmm. and making six figures. And then if you wanna if you wanna headline and and make make a six-figure salary headlining, you got to be doing that about 48 weekends out of the year, and that means a life completely on the road and all that other stuff. And so I knew that wasn't for me, so I started looking for other ways of being funny and making a living, and I kind of saw guys who were doing warm-up, and I was like, oh, that is in TV. It must pay well, and it's in the afternoons. I can do stand-up. Like, that's perfect. So what I did is I started to take some classies at the UCB. Mm-hmm. Um and Which classes at the UCB just basic improv, were relevant? Just uh, basic just improv, basic. you know, just to learn some of the improv because okay. it's all crowd work, you right. know. So I was like, I want to learn how to do that. So I took what I knew from stand-up and I took what I learned from the UCB. Who were your teachers at UCB? Do you remember? Ari Vukadis. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chris Gethard yeah. did one thing. He didn't teach me a whole class, okay. but he, he – I was on something with him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a long time. I, I honestly don't remember – who else? Oh, those uh, are two good ones. Yeah, yeah, they were they were great teachers. Yeah. Um, but the the so what I did is I took I took my improv mm-hmm. training, the idea of working at the top of your intelligence, yes and that kind of stuff, and I just and I started doing that, mixing it with my stand up, and at, at this point I would what, had moved into the world of hosting. You know, that's kind of your first foray into the city right. clubs is to be a host, and I was really good at it. Like I watched I watched the way Letterman and and Conan started every night of the show. You're already tuning in to Letterman. You want to watch Letterman, but his his first thing was always hyping the show a bit. We got a great show tonight. Right. So-and-so's on the show, blah, 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 and then giving the audience – they always seem to give the audience a reason to applaud and that kind of – so I was picking up these things, mm-hmm. and it made me a really, really good host, and I hosted – it had to be a thousand shows over over the years in the city, just constantly. At which which clubs? Um, Stand up New York. Mm-hmm. Um, Al Martin had used me all the time. Uh, it, there was a point where I was the the house MC at New York Comedy Club, and he was also had Broadway and he mm-hmm. had, he had Boston. But right. any weekend I didn't have road work, 
I knew I could make money at least a little bit working for Al for, okay. for those. So I did a lot of it. And um, that was – those skills are the exact same skills that a warm-up guy needs. It's it's that, that ability to get the crowd hyped, give them reason to applaud, trick them into becoming engaged, get them laughing, right. and then turn it over to the other people. Now those jobs though, they're not like on a – Bulletin board, or no. are they like? How do you how do you how do you word know when a <laughs> when a job comes up? It was a word of mouth thing, really. Mm-hmm. I I also um I I ingratiated myself with a guy who was doing yeah it. who was doing it before and uh, okay. well, Paul Mercurio okay and he was the warm up guy at the mm-hmm. Daily Show and and um I knew I knew that that Paul used young comics to write for him a mm-hmm. lot, so I got myself in writing for okay. him and so so. He knew I wanted to get into warm up, so our deal was I would write whatever he wanted mm-hmm. for whatever I was. I was his bitch for quite a while, and he would throw me a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real trade was if and when opportunities for warm up came up, he, you know, he would recommend me for jobs right. he couldn't do or to back him up. Right. You were the understudy, the sub. The... Yeah, exactly. So I substituted for him. Okay. So then you still do what's that? You still do sometimes, don't you? Uh, like for late show. Yeah, he, yeah, co- coincidentally, does... yeah, yeah. When he's not there, sometimes I yeah. go in and sure. Um, but the but so that was the kind of the deal. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he, um, our our relationship kind of after a while it, it fell apart. Mm-hmm. He'd gotten me a couple of things, and then we didn't really speak for a year. And then he called one day, mm-hmm. um, which was basically they you know they they were looking for somebody to back him up at the at the Daily Show, and they had gone through a bunch of people and really not liked it because a lot of guys just go out and just do stand up, and it's right. not what you do. So, um, so that's kind of how you get it. It's it's basically somebody drops your name, and a, a lot of writers and producers for the Daily Show were were stand ups. So, um, so I had a good reputation because I hosted and everybody knew me. So I think Paul threw my name into the ring, mm-hmm. and then John. Or, or one of the executive producer uh, knew me a bit and was like, "Well, who's this guy? Is anybody else?" And a couple other people vouched for me. Yeah, give him a shot. And then, um, and then I just seized the moment. I had one chance. I had, I got the call from the Daily Show. There's like, you, this is how it works. Uh-huh. You come in, you do the show one time. John's the only person who matters. He, if he likes you, you're in. Right. And you're golden. And if he doesn't, well, you got to do the show once, and you can right. always tell your grandkids about the day you did the Daily Show. So. Mm-hmm. What I did was I decided um, – I knew that I could do the job. I've, I did it for some other shows at that point. I knew how to do the job, and I knew that because I was a mega fan of the show that I was – basically that audience were just a bunch of people like me, like-minded individuals. So they're going to be on my side. I just had to come up with a way of letting Jon Stewart know that – I'd be cool to work with, that he and I <laughs> are simpatico, we would get along beyond just that we were stand-ups. Right. And the thing that I knew was that uh, John and I have in common is a uh, an obsessive love for Bruce Springsteen. Mm. And so what I did – And Chris Christie. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but, well, no, you don't love Chris no, Christie. No, I don't love Chris Christie. <laughs> yeah. But what yeah, I, they get it. They get it, yeah. But what I did – so what I did is I, I went out and I did the warm-up and mm-hmm. I did everything. I got them cheering and everything's going great and I'm killing and, and it was – it just couldn't have gone better. It was such a perfect show to, to, to be auditioning on. And then when I got the sign from the stage manager that it's time to bring John out, mm-hmm. introduce him. So my job is to bring him out, hand him the mic, shake hands and head out. I gave uh, – this, this was the moment. I, so what I did is I gave him – 
what I call the Clarence Clemens intro, which is on a lot of, lot of live albums, they'll be doing 10th Avenue Freeze Out, mm-hmm. and they get to this point where he's doing everybody. Yeah, and he's introducing the whole band, and he and he does he does Clarence he last, and okay. he and he does this whole thing. Do I have to say his name? <laughs> Do I have to speak his name from the great state of New Jersey, weighing in at 275 pounds? Da, 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 da. He just uh-huh. Bruce would give this whole thing, yeah. and then Clarence Clemens, and then so that was it. So now it's time to bring John out, mm-hmm. and I'm like, Do I have to speak his name? Do I? And I do the whole mm-hmm. thing from the great state of New Jersey, weighing in at 125 pounds. <laughs> you guys know, blah, blah 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 blah. And and what I didn't didn't necessarily realize at the time, but John comes out to the opening strains of Born to Run every <laughs> night. So I do this. Uh-huh. John Stewart, the fucking crowd is on their feet. They're mm-hmm. cheering. Born to Run pops in, and John would enter from where the guests would enter and to, to come out. And he came out, and he never broke eye contact with him the whole time as he's walking towards me to shake my hand. And he just keeps mouthing, wow. <laughs> wow. And I was in. I shook his hand, uh-huh. and I actually had to run to get out to do a, a, a show at Bananas. <laughs> I couldn't even stay for the taping or to meet him after. I had to run. Bananas. Bananas and Hasbrook Heights. Yeah. Not so by the – Hasbrook no, Heights. the Hasbro Heights one, yeah. But by the time I got there and I was mm-hmm. in the uh, – I, I parked the car. I had a text on my phone from the executive producer said, John's beaming. Welcome mm-hmm. aboard. And then it turns out he talked about me in the postmortem and oh, how happy he was. Nice. And, and so that got me in the door and now it's all these years later and I'm the only person in the world who John Stewart or his company has hired to work on all four of his shows. I did right. Daily Show, Colbert. I'm the Nightly Show guy. And now – as you said, I back up. I'm the substitute at the late show as well. Wow. So pretty cool. That pretty cool. Pretty you know? cool. Yeah, it's one of those things you can't take away from me. You know, that I'll, uh, I always look at this guy like, you know, it's like saying back in the 50s you got to open for Sinatra all the time or something like that, like a legendary person. And I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. I also can't take away the, the fact that you are single-handedly the person responsible for getting a street <laughs> named for George Carlin. Yeah. Which – when you started that, mm-hmm. how long did you think it would take? We, strangely enough, we had no idea going into it. <laughs> really, no idea. And it, it was a peti- it started with the petition. Started with a petition. Well, right. it started with John Stewart actually, because I came up with the idea. I was hanging out with Rory Albanese, who was okay. the executive producer at the show, and now at Nightly Show. Yep. Yeah. And we were hanging out at his apartment one Sunday afternoon, and. Uh, that's where I came up with the with the idea that this should be done, and mm-hmm. and and he Rory was encouraging, and his idea was first was well let's go in on Monday mm-hmm. and we're gonna we're gonna talk to John about this because we were naive we thought this could be literally he could call Bloomberg right. and get just, it done just, just like just why do it? it yeah exactly turns out um, so what John said was. He thought it was a great idea, but he said let's uh, let's find out how you do it, and mm-hmm. so one of the one of the the, the producers at the show had a friend who worked in city hall so he put a call in to find out about how it works out and then we found out oh no you got to do these steps and Mm -hmm. and so we were told it should take about 18 months is 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 generally how long these takes um i had no idea it was going to be three years but (laughs) i didn't know how eventful it was going to be either but um why did you have the idea well i started um I live in Morningside Heights, which is the neighborhood where okay. George lives, and I had just just uh, read his um, his memoir, okay. the uh, the one that Tony um, Hendra, yeah, Tony Hendra's, yeah, that came out. It was post. Uh, it was after he died, mm-hmm. and, and I read it, and and um, I'd always knew he was 
from that neighborhood, but I never knew exactly where. And in the book, he had a whole chapter about the Morningside Heights, mm-hmm. and he actually put the physical address of his building. And so it was a, it was a nice May afternoon, and I just took a walk, and I went up there, and I was just like making a little pilgrimage, mm-hmm. see George's building and right. all that. And um, I got up there, and he'd been dead for about three years at this point. He was by far the most famous person to ever come from there, and it combined with not only an amazing comic and all that, but you know those first couple of albums that I love, Class Clown and Occupation Fool, are – they're just centered there. They're about right. the people. They're about no, the yeah. street. They're about right, that there's area. that track, White Harlem. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and and, cool. and they're they're kind of like time capsules. So I'm up there, and I, I just noticed. I was like, there's not a gold plaque on this building mm-hmm. saying George is here. There's no street sign saying George is here. The deli doesn't have a George Carlin sandwich. There's no way that, in my opinion, as a George Carlin fan, that street – is as important to me as Abbey Road is to a Beatles fan. It's just synonymous. And how how does the city not have anything? Right. So, so I was a couple of days later hanging out with Rory, and I I just was telling him exactly that. And I I said, you know, somebody should really get on the city. And he was like, well, why don't you do it? I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, uh, all right, you know, doesn't take sure. a lot of convincing. Let's, why not? Me? I got some time, and I was, and at the time I was really looking on some level, whether I knew it or not, I was looking for a break from stand up. Something to do to occupy my time and my mind that wasn't stand-up because up to that point, I'd basically gone from a maybe a 9, 10, 11-year run where I did spots every night you know, almost without delay. I never had more than a three-day break, right. I think, except for my honeymoon was the first time where I had like two weeks off of stand-up. Um, so I just – I needed – at some point, a stand-up needs to, to to walk away for a while to have a life, to have experiences yeah. to talk about so you're not in some weird bubble. And uh, and that was – that kind of started me on that road. In retrospect, uh-huh. are you surprised that the Catholic Church put up such a fight? No. I'm, I'm, I'm not – it's <laughs> at first I was naive because I was told um, I was told well you know by the powers that be well you know what just get the priest at the at Corpus Christi his alma mater to sign off and you'll be fine and and so I called the priest cold called him got him on the phone told him what I wanted to do and he tore into me he went off he was this crotchety old bastard and he tore into me for twenty minutes but at the end of the conversation he said. He was kind of spent. He said, listen he, – uh, he says, listen, uh, I'm not going to support you on this, but I'm not going to fight you either. So <laughs> go ahead. Do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll stay out of it. So then, of course, he didn't right. and he lied <laughs> and, and it ended up being – so at that point, I was blindsided when they did start to fight. But, blindsided by a Catholic priest. Right? <laughs> but what if but, – but looking back, I mean I, I – what a gift. What a gift from George to me that I got – I mean how many how many comics you know, get to actually literally get into a fight right. with the Catholic Church. That's then – and not only that, but that's played out throughout the national press that, yeah. that put, put so much emphasis on it. And, and it was, it was what, a, what a cool experience. And I was there for the unveiling mm-hmm. and uh, so many comedians turned out. Yeah. How did that? So many more wanted to. And how did you? How did you feel seeing all? Of, it was awesome. All of those like <laughs> legends and legends in the making assembled. It was awesome. Well, we'd already done um, a fundraiser show about mm-hmm. a year before where right. we had, we'd had 
actually Alex has the poster out out in his living room that's autographed by everybody. But Lewis Black was on it, and, mm-hmm. and Dave Attell, and, and a bunch of people. So, um, and I I had been hearing from comics. I'd been getting some Facebook posts and, mm-hmm. and support and, and stuff like that. But uh, what a great what a great day! Um, my biggest my I think my favorite memory of that day was you know my parents were there and um, my you know some some of my family, but you know my dad who really turned me on to comedy and was so funny and such an influence just you know just seeing him walking around i've got this picture of of my both of my parents in deep conversation with robert klein yeah and you know and i've got i've got uh i got all these all these different people and and you know like at the end of the day when i talked to a friend on the phone who couldn't be there he was like well sum it up in, in one <laughs> sentence and i said to him i said uh, oh that's simple i said dave attell hugged me <laughs> You know, it was such a cool thing. So many. Yeah, he hasn't great hugged me yet. No, no, I, he hasn't hugged me since. But I was like, that's that's awesome. You who know? who over the years has been has been uh, has given you the best advice hmm. in terms of continuing on this journey? I don't. Boy, I'm not a big advice seeking guy. So I anything don't, recently? Um, honestly, I I I'm I I kind of burn my own mm-hmm. path a little bit i don't i don't ask what, for too much advice what about uh what about you know you also do the uh popular movie preview mm-hmm. review podcast yes has there been any movie where you've gone oh there's a life lesson there <laughs> oh sure yeah there's a lot of those um i just uh anything recently captain america civil war does that teach you a lot about <laughs> <laughs> the power of responsibility. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I've been watching. Oh, come I've been on. Watching, you I just watched the trailers. I just watched the previews. Yeah, a lot of times it's movies that I would never watch. In fact, especially with the Captain America and all the mm-hmm. Star Wars and all the yeah. nerd shit, I've literally now tapped out. And <laughs> and I do. We now mm-hmm. have episodes. We just put up our first one last week where it's it's my co-host Jay and my producer mm-hmm. Adam who are who are both just into all that shit. And it's not me. It's the nerd episode. Mm-hmm. They talk about all those things. Right. I just can't do it anymore. I don't give a shit about any of that. But they really what, do. So. What mo- what movies jazz you up then? Um, I like I like stuff from the seventies. Okay. I just rewatched all the presidents. What do you, what men do you get out of like, them? Well, right, watching them now. What do you? Yeah, what do you, well, right now. What do you take away. It's it's about it's a lot of times it's it's about the acting. Like uh-huh. like because I'm I'm going into another play and stuff like okay. that. Like I've been on this kick the last few days of watching really good actors do you know like i'm, I'm on a jason robards kick uh, right now. yeah he's so yeah, he played good. Uh, ben bradley in all the president's men he paid, played ben bradley and i was watching yeah. i've seen this movie a I dozen mean, I'm a times journalist, so that movie really yeah. gets to me i've seen that movie a dozen times but but i'm watching it la- the other night mm-hmm. and he delivers this one line which is maybe my favorite delivery of any line ever and he's saying they're they're at the point where they're just about to uh you're about to name Holderman. Yeah, and he, he and I'm not going to do it justice. But what he what he says is, uh, <laughs> he says to them, um, "We're uh, so we're we're just about to accuse the second most powerful man in the world of leading a vast criminal conspiracy out of the Oval Office. Uh, it'd be nice if we were right." <laughs> and just the I way thought, he understated, you know, it'd be nice if we were right. I did. He also that. have a line in that scene where he goes. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's so good. So I was watching him and and then mm-hmm. Martin Balsam and all those guys. Like yeah. I love, I love those guys because they're all you know they were all theater actors and and then they do, they seem to the thing about the seventies was they those you didn't see, a guy like that. Mm-hmm. He he didn't have to do he didn't have to do a superhero picture 
in order to do something smaller and more meaningful. It was just more meaningful, better scripts and stuff right. like that. So, you know, we um, I, I really loved the writing and I loved the style back then. I I um, I love all the President's Men and of course the Godfather stuff. And I'm a huge Woody Allen guy, and especially his stuff from the '70s. So I I like to watch a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, simple stories being told. You know, and I, I think it's because of so much theater. I like a movie that, you know, could be kind of a – you're just watching a play. You're not – I don't like the special effects. I don't need all that stuff. I just want to watch intelligent actors working at the top of their craft. Is that too much to ask, Hollywood? <laughs> it's it's what needs to be asked. Yeah. So I, I always end uh, my interviews by asking my guest – if a young or even not young, if someone who who wants to be an actor wants to be a comedian, mm-hmm. but but is still finding their way and comes to you asking you for advice, what's the first thing you tell them? Well, I would say a young actor and a young comedian are two different right. two different sets of advice. Um, for a young comedian, I've I've kind of already mentioned it earlier, but if you can get yourself working at a comedy club, working the door. Uh, jump at that opportunity. You're going to make connections. You're going to meet great mm-hmm. comics, and don't piss that opportunity away. Sit there, watch the show, learn from these guys. Um, that's the best. There's no, you know, there's no really good. Everybody teaches a class and all that stuff, and um, you know, I don't, I don't. I've taken some classes. Like I said, I took a class from Lisa all those years mm-hmm. ago. But um, it's something you just. You you need to learn by watching the best and watching them do it, and and then and then it's just a matter of get on stage constantly, keep writing, stay true to yourself. If you do a bit that you think is too close to somebody else, get rid of that bit. You know, if you hear somebody did a bit, if you hear somebody ripped off a bit of yours or something else, just get rid of the bit. Just write something new and just keep going. And then the the other thing is to to diversify, to find ways that you can make a living with your sense of humor. You know, I always try to have, you know, a half dozen different income streams because they'll never gush at the same time, but hopefully they'll never run dry, so you'll always have something coming in. And so that was my thing. It's like I may not end up being, you know, Jerry Seinfeld or the next George Carlin. I may not be the world's most popular stand-up comedian, but you know, I'm pushing 40 and I make my living and have for a long time just from being funny. So figure out how to do that and 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 so that's what i would say and, and as far as a young actor right if they come up to you after one of the performances yeah. of a midsummer night's dream and it's like <laughs> how do i get to be off broadway in shakespeare <laughs> young actor i tell them don't start I don't, <laughs> literally it's so it's so much <laughs> at least with stand-up you can do it every night mm-hmm. you can go do bar shows you can scratch that itch you you know for for an actor we are it's such you know, it, it it's way beyond a dime a dozen, you know, um, and it's like if you must act or something like that, if you can do anything else, do that. If you if you feel the need that you want to own a house, have kids, have a life, you know, you know you're not going to do that as an actor. Go ahead. Get it. Get a nice day job. Do that. Live in the burbs. Have have your family and go join a community theater. Go do something else. Scratch that itch somehow, you know, but um I, I it's I just I I've kind of uh, fell ass backwards into theater again. I got uh, I got lucky and um, 
I, you know, it's not something I really aspired to, but it's been a, it's been a cool journey. It's been, you know, I'm now, this is my, my fourth play since George Carlin way. So I'm, I'm, you know, I've gotten to do a tour and I've gotten to do, th- you know, I'm part of an ensemble repertory theater company and mm-hmm. that's all wonderful. But, uh, I, the only reason I'm able to do it is because there's no money. There's there's nothing. I'm an off-Broadway show. You know, <laughs> The whole run, I get like 300 bucks. It's not. It's the only reason I can do it is because I have that steady gig at the nightly show that affords me the opportunity to do it. But if, if I didn't, I, I couldn't survive in New York City as an actor. No way. It's too difficult. Sorry <laughs> to bum people out. But <laughs> well, Kevin, uh, thanks for sharing your cool journey with me. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks for having me on the show. I love your show. It's uh, exciting to be on here. Showbiz Studios. <laughs> they're doing it. That's right. <laughs> Last This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.